Well, good morning and welcome to Bridgewater. If I've not gotten a chance to meet you yet, my name is Tim. I'm one of the pastors here, and we are excited that you are here with us today. Uh, we are in week seven of a series called Starting Point, seven out of eight, so we are almost done. We're getting close to landing the plane. Thanks for that. And uh, for those of you who don't know, I went to college at uh, Summit University in Clark Summit, Pennsylvania. It used to be called Baptist Bible College. And I was there for four years. And while I was there for four years, it was one of the most incredible experiences ever. Because I was there and I was surrounded by people who knew Jesus, who loved God, who wanted to help other people know God. And every week, uh, we would have chapel, Monday through Friday. At 10 a.m., we would wander into this, this big room and we would have an incredible band, almost as good as our band, and they would lead us in worship for a good 30 minutes. And then we would hear preachers who from all over the country would come and share about God's word. We had teachers that would open up class with prayer. Coming from public school, I was like, whoa, what is going on here? I had a dorm filled with guys who loved Jesus and wanted to help everybody else grow in their faith. And while all of that was going on, in the middle of all of that, I found myself doubting and wrestling with my faith. I found myself asking really hard questions. Who is God? Does he care? And if he cares, if he cares so much, why doesn't he answer my prayers? If God knows everything and everything about me, why would I talk to him? Why do I need to talk to him? He already knows everything. If God really does care, then, then why is this happening or why is that happening? Do I really believe in God? Is all of this for real? And all of those doubts and those questions, they just began to weigh on me. And they weighed so heavily that I just stopped. I stopped reading my Bible. I stopped praying. And it wasn't because I was too busy or preoccupied. It wasn't because I was lazy. It wasn't because I didn't want to. I did want to. In fact, that was the whole reason I was there. But I stopped because I had those questions and doubts, and I had very few answers. And I began to wonder, and I began to wrestle with, is, is this Christianity thing for real? Is Christianity just another example of groupthink, but on a massive scale? And by groupthink, I mean when all of your friends say, hey, let's go jump off the bridge. And you're like, oh, that's a great idea. Let's go jump. Is that all Christianity is? And I wrestled with those questions. I wrestled with those doubts. And I wonder, have you ever doubted? Have you ever wrestled with your faith? Because there's something that's different. I believe there's something different about faith. There's something different about Christianity. And I believe that all of us have a belief. All of us have some sort of faith. But faith is not just a religious concept. You, you and I, we express faith every single day. If you've ever been on an airplane, you've expressed faith. When you came into this room, you sat down on those chairs. You expressed faith. You believed they would hold you up. Not one person in the first service fell because of the chairs. But we all have faith. And 
today we're going to talk about the thing that undergirds my faith because faith is the most confused, misused, and abused concept in religion, both by religious and irreligious people. And so today I want to start off by making three observations. These are just three general observations about faith. One, the ability to believe is the most powerful force at our disposal. The ability to believe that something could be, that something should be true, that has solved problems all over the world. I mean, just think about Steve Jobs. Steve Jobs thought, believed, you can have a thousand songs in your pocket. So he invented the iPod. And that grew and developed, and now we have the iPhone and iPods and all sorts of things that electronics that you can hear things and see things and experience things because the ability to believe is the most powerful force at our disposal. If you think it could happen, if you think it should happen, it's incredibly powerful. Number two, we constantly look for evidence to support what we believe to be true. Now, this is especially true of Republicans and Democrats and every other system out there, right? You constantly look for evidence to support what it is that you think is true, whatever it is that you believe to be true. You begin to filter in certain information and you begin to filter out other things that you hear. And you begin to protect those ideas. You begin to protect those concepts. You challenge those things that challenge you. Number three, belief is easy to maintain within a community of shared belief. No one knows this more than the Bears fans. Okay? Challenge them, and they will tell you, this is going to be the year, Tim. They're going to go all the way. They're going to be great, right? Our pastor in Tonkanic is a huge Browns fan. So is Jeff. And they tell me that the Browns have the greatest defense in the NFL. And you challenge that, and they will tell you. They'll rise up against you, and they'll give you all sorts of reasons as to why and why you're wrong, right? Because belief is easy to maintain within a community or shared belief. Those are simply just general observations about belief and faith. And here's what I think is true. I think that God gave us the ability to believe. He gave you and I all of that so that we could have faith. And you express faith in different areas all the time. And so... Today, I want to share why I'm a follower of Jesus and what it is that undergirds my faith. So if you have your Bibles, go to Acts chapter 17. Acts chapter 17, while you're turning there, let me give you a little bit of the context. Paul has just arrived in Athens, Greece. He's walking around, and this is an incredible city. In its heyday, it was known for art and philosophy Socrates, Plato, these are the people that spoke there, that taught there. Aristotle was there. He taught there. It is an incredible city filled with religion, filled with superstition. And as he's walking around, he sees something that is quite disturbing to him. And he begins to have a conversation, and we get to listen in on that conversation. So Acts chapter 17 We'll start reading in verse 16. The verses are going to be on the screen behind me. 
If you don't have a Bible, here's what it says. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was deeply troubled by all the idols he saw everywhere in the city. He went to the synagogue to reason with the Jews and the God-fearing Gentiles, and he spoke daily in the public square to all who happened to be there. He also had a debate with some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers. When he told them about Jesus and his resurrection, they said, what's this babbler trying to say with these strange ideas he's picked up? Others said, he seems to be preaching about some foreign gods. Then they took, they took him to a high council of the city. Come and tell us about this new teaching, they said. You are saying some rather strange things, and we want to know what it's all about. It should be explained that all the Athenians, as well as the foreigners in Athens, seem to spend all their time discussing the latest ideas. So there they are. They stop Paul. They say, Paul, start from the beginning. Verse 22. So Paul, standing before the council, addressed them as follows. Men of Athens, I notice that you are very religious in every way. For as I was walking along, I saw your many shrines, and one of your altars had this inscription on it, to an unknown God. This God, whom you worship without knowing, is the one I'm telling you about. Paul sees this giant altar and this inscription, and it just simply says, Unknown God. Hey, we've tried to cover all of our bases. We've got an altar. We've got a shrine for every single God imaginable. But just in case we missed one, we got it covered. In case this God shows up and he says, hey, what about, did you hear, did you know? We're like, yeah, 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 yeah. We just didn't know your name. We got it covered. They're religious. They're superstitious. And Paul says, look, I actually know the God you're missing. I actually know the God that you're looking for. And so let me take the un off of the unknown and make him known. Let me unpack this for you. Let me pull back the curtain and share about the one who has changed my life. And so that's what Paul is getting after. This is why people go to church on Christmas and Easter, just in case just in case this really is true, just in case Jesus really is the Savior of the world. And that's what they're thinking. Just in case we missed something, we want to make sure we've got this covered. But they have the wrong starting point. Paul goes in a little further and listen to what he says. Verse 24, he says, The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth. It does not live in temples built by human hands. He's not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else, right? Because they would have brought these idols and these shrines and these altars, all sorts of food and beverages and gold and silver. He says, the God who made everything, he doesn't need those things. Verse 26 from one man, he made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. 
God did this so they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he's not far from any one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of you, as some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. You're looking at creation and you're looking at all of these gods and you're trying to appease them, you're trying to bribe them, and God says, look, I don't need any of those things from you. I don't want anything from you. I want something for you. We talked about that last week. He wants grace for you. And so Paul begins to talk about the one who breathed everything into existence. He created everything. The entire universe just said, okay, here's some stars. Here's some more lights. Here's the creation, here's people, here's plants, here's the water, here's the fish. We're going to fill the sea, we're going to fill the sky, creating everything. That is the unknown God. His name is Jesus. Paul is telling them about this, and it's blowing their mind. He's the one who gives life. They have a lot of questions, a lot of doubts. They're a little cautious about this. But take a look at what he says next. Verse 31. For he has set a day when he would judge the world with justice by the man, that's Jesus, he appointed. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. He gave proof. He proved to everyone by raising himself from the dead. Jesus is that one man. And so proof changes everything. Evidence changes everything. Proof, it moves us from hope so to know so, right? I hope this will happen. I hope this chair will hold me up. I hope this airplane keeps on flying. I hope the Browns win. <laughs> so does Jeff. But proof, proof makes that shift to now I have certainty. And Jesus provided proof, provided evidence, and it takes all of the doubt, all of the questioning out of it. Now just because you have questions, just because you have doubts, doesn't make you a bad person. It's not wrong to have those doubts. It's not wrong to have those questions. But don't stay there. Because there really is proof. There really is evidence and Paul is saying, I've heard, I've heard from eyewitnesses who actually saw the resurrected Jesus. I, I, I talked to people who were there when Jesus came back. It wasn't something that I read about because it wasn't written about yet, but I actually talked to real people. And something you need to know about Paul is, is Paul's mission before Christ was to totally stomp out the church, to snuff it out completely. He wanted to kill Christians, persecute them. He wanted to destroy the church. And one day, Jesus interrupted his life 
And he met the resurrected Jesus and it radically changed everything. So Paul says, look, I've talked to these eyewitnesses. I've talked to these people. There actually is proof. There actually is evidence. In fact, when Jesus came back from the dead, there was over 500 eyewitnesses. That's incredible. That's an incredible amount of evidence because those people were likely still alive at the time of these letters being written to these churches. The letter to the Corinthians was being written, and those people, hundreds of people, were still alive. The book of Acts was being written, and hundreds of those people who said, yeah, I saw Jesus, I was an eyewitness, they were still alive. Meaning you could go check with them. You could check their story. You could ask, did it really happen? Was it like this? Was it like that? What did you see? What did you hear? And hundreds of people were there to give proof, to give an account. But not only that, many of the disciples of Jesus suffered and died for what they believed to be true. I'll tell you, there's nobody who's willing to suffer and die for something that they know is actually a lie. So not only were there hundreds of eyewitnesses, not only were these men and women willing to suffer and die for what they believed, but you have the evidence, you have the proof of a changed life. Not only is that true for Paul, but that's, that's true for me. It's true for many of the people in this room. And so Paul is saying, look, there is proof. There is actual evidence. But this was the message that was about to spread all over the globe. Paul is here in Athens. He's sharing with a religious group, a superstitious group about who Jesus is. Take a look at what happens next. Verse 32. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them, they laughed. They sneered in contempt. But others said, we want to hear more about this later. Verse 33. That ended Paul's discussion with them. Verse 34. But some joined him and became believers among them were Dionysus, a member of the council, a woman named Damaris, and others with them. So they sneered, they laughed, they mocked Paul. Now, to be fair to them, what do dead people normally do? They stay dead, right? So to be fair to these philosophers, these thinkers, to hear about somebody who was dead and is now alive, it's kind of hard to believe. But proof demands a response. And some of them, they were skeptics. They doubted. They questioned. They mocked Paul. I would say they were haters, right? They didn't want anything to do with Paul. They wanted nothing to do with Christianity. They wanted nothing to do with this resurrection, some of them, they heard this message of the resurrection and they were intrigued. I would describe them as fans, right? They, they weren't necessarily skeptics, but they, were, they wanted to hear more. Tell us a little bit more. But then Paul says, some of them decided to actually follow Jesus. They were followers. And I think within our church, we have some that fall into each of these three categories. Maybe haters a little strong. Maybe you're a skeptic, 
you're questioning, you're doubting, you're wondering. Is that really true? How do I know for sure? Can you actually back that up? And you're just kind of sitting back. But some of you, you're a little further down the line. You've been here. You're excited about what's happening. You love looking over the fence, seeing what's going on. You love cheering. You sit in the audience. You applaud. You're excited. You're a fan. In fact, you may have asked Jesus to be a leader of your life and the forgiver of your sins, but you're just kind of following at a distance. You're there in the audience. You're in the crowd. You're cheering. Your team is winning. You're excited. And some of you, you're all in. You say, okay, here, I'm all in. Whatever it's going to cost, I'm going forward. I'm following Jesus. I'm living my life like Jesus lived his life. No matter where you are, I don't want you to think about it as a scale, like you move from one to the next. If you're a skeptic, I want to ask you the question, what's stopping you from following Jesus? If you have doubts and yeah buts, I might not be able to answer all of your questions or resolve all of those tensions, but what's, what's really stopping you from being a follower of Jesus? If you're interested, you're intrigued, you're, you're an enthusiast, or you're following at a distance, what's stopping you from going all in and following Jesus? Because proof demands a response. And the single event that changed everything was the resurrection. The single event was really an answer to the question of who is Jesus? Who is Jesus to you? Really? And so these individuals coming from this artistic, philosophical, religious, superstitious culture had to wrestle with that question. Who is Jesus? And I want you to think through where, where are you on these scales or on these categories? Where are you? And here's the big idea. The thing that makes Jesus different from any other religious system or religious leaders isn't something he taught, but something he did. Because he died and he came back to life. There is proof. There is evidence. And that proof demands some kind of response. You may respond and say, yeah, that's not for me. Cool story. I loved it. That was encouraging, but that's not for me. Some of you may respond and go, okay, I don't know if I'm all in yet, but I like what's happening here. I, I appreciate the service. I, I love how I feel afterward. It's, it's uplifting. It's encouraging. And maybe some of you are saying, you know what? I've been all in. I am all in. But here's the question I really want to leave you with. Is what's your next step? I want all of us to wrestle with that question. And so we put these cards out on your seats today. And there's a verse on there. It's Philippians 4 and 9. I want you to find this card. If you don't have one, maybe it fell on the floor. Maybe it's the seat in front of you. Grab that right now. We thought of Philippians 4 and 9 because it has to do with my next step. That everybody has 
a next step. Paul writes to the church in Philippi and he says this, keep putting into practice. Keep practicing and keep practicing and keep practicing and keep practicing. Keep taking a next step and a next step and a next step. All what? All that you have learned and received from me. Everything you've heard from me and saw me doing. Paul says, look, you saw me take my next step. You saw me take another one and another one. You saw me doing it. You saw me practicing it. You saw me living out the way of Jesus. Keep putting those things into practice. Keep taking your next step. Then the God of peace will be with you. So what's your next step? On the back of this card, it's blank. It's blank on purpose. I simply want you to find something to write with, a pencil, a pen, and I want you to write down your next step. For some of you, it might be going to discovery class. For some of you, it might be growing in your generosity. Could be financial generosity. Could be with your time and serving could be with your energies. It could be just more generosity at home with your kids and your spouse. Or is your next step to get baptized? Or is your next step to follow Jesus and go all in? Or maybe your next step is to finally put that habit to death. Just take it out at the roots and kill it. But you need to replace that old habit with something new. You need to put off something and put on something. And I want you to write it down. And here's why I want you to write it down, because it will serve as a reminder to you. The second thing I'm asking you to do is to share it with somebody. Whether you take a picture of this card and send a text to a friend, or you just write it down and you say, here's what I'm doing. Ask me how I'm doing later this week. That's incredibly powerful to include people in your life who can say, hey, Tim, hey, Jeff, hey, Keith, I, I saw what you said you're working on. How are you doing? To have other guys, have other ladies ask you, how are you doing? You said you were going to do X, Y, Z. How's it going? Where you can be open and honest and say, you know what? It's, you're right. I said I was going to do that, and I haven't been doing it, or I haven't been doing very well. I need to do better. Thanks for reminding me. And so before you leave, I want you to write something down on this card, and I want you to share it, because every single one of us has a next step. Christianity requires faith in a person. Maybe that's, that's it for you. But the bigger question is, have you made that commitment to that person? Have you made that commitment to follow Jesus? Let me pray with you. God, you are amazing. And uh, if you can change the life of Paul, if you can change the life of these individuals living in Athens, if you can change our lives, God, there's nothing you can't do. I'm so grateful for all that you've done 
in our lives and in this church and this community. And I just ask that you would help each and every one of us to take our next step. <clears throat> what does that look like in following you? What does it look like to um, move forward? For those who have doubts and questions, I just pray that you would come alongside each of us. Give us the courage and boldness to take that next step and remind us of that. But I also ask that you would give us the courage to share that with somebody today before we leave. We pray all that in Christ's name. Amen.